growing in God's Word, and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. We have murder, we have unjust wars, uh, genocide, you name it. So in a very broad context, in every culture, human life is under attack. Because of the overwhelming response to last week's roundtable discussion with Dr. Eric Clary and the desire for so many to hear his response to the remainder of the questions we had hoped to answer last week, we've decided to go ahead and finish that discussion from last week. It's actually a discussion of some issues that are front and center, front and center in our culture and perhaps many uh, here in this body. Uh, I suspect a body of this size, uh, folks have been touched in one way or the other by one or more of these issues. I'm Rick Freeman, and welcome to part two of our life and ethics discussion on Crosswalk. As followers of Jesus, we have to think biblically and make decisions based on God's Word. Discussing subjects such as stem cell research, capital punishment, and the sanctity of human life are all part of the process of developing fully devoted followers of Jesus. God is always there, and He says, My child, I love you. My grace is sufficient for you. I'll meet you where you are, and I'll take you to where I want you to be and what is best for you if you'll simply release yourself to me. Now let's join Pastor Clay and Dr. Eric Clary for the second part of our Life and Ethics discussion on Crosswalk. This is uh, round two of Table Talk uh, today, and uh, I'll be honest with you, it wasn't really planned that way, but... um, Uh, I just had such an overwhelming response this past week. Eric and I knew that we weren't going to be able to finish the subject matter that we started last week, Um, but, you know, I thought, well, maybe later in the year, if we have a good response, we'll we'll pick it up. Well, y'all spoke loud and clear that uh, that y'all would would love to hear the rest of those questions uh, today. I even had somebody, had a number of people that were not going to be here today, and uh, one person even said, you know, videotape it, uh, which, Eric, no one has ever asked to do when I'm just uh, preaching, you know, so... (laughs) Clearly, that means you're better looking than I am, so uh, I just have to take that one too. Uh, he's already a lot smarter than I am. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to go through the whole introduction of Eric. Uh, he's part of cross-culture. He's, he's, he's one of the elders of this church. Uh, you know, all that stuff. You were here last week. You heard all that. If you weren't here, I, I encourage you to go back and listen to last week's podcast uh, on our website, crossculturelife.org. Go back and listen to the podcast for last week because we're going to kind of jump into the middle of this uh, this week. But, but let me just say he's really smart. Um, that's why several of you have asked me, uh, I, I can never keep up with, with his, uh, with his intelligence. So I wore a tie in the hope that I would at least look smarter, uh, up here, uh, with him. But, uh, he's very accomplished in, uh, in his field, has, uh, won a number of awards, a uh, bunch of degrees, and, um, uh, has been published on a number of occasions in the area, uh, particularly of bioethics. And so it's, it's, a, it's a great privilege for us to have that resource that Eric is here at Cross Culture. Most important about Eric, and I know he hates every bit of this, uh, but that's what I can say. What's be- most important about Eric is that he is a man of amazing humility. Uh, he loves Jesus, loves people, and uh, just wants to serve God in whatever capacity that the Lord would give him to do that. So, uh, Eric, come on up here, my brother. Let's uh, get started. Yeah, make him feel welcome. He's our, he's our uh, guest speaker today. Now, if you weren't here, uh, we're, we're discussing bio, uh, issues dealing with life, and especially in regards to bioethics, uh, what gives value to life, what's meaning to life. And let me just say this again this week. The things that we're discussing, that we discussed last week and that we'll discuss this week, are not intended to 
make someone feel bad or guilty or, or whatever else, but to help us, as I said last week, understand what it means to think biblically about every area of our life. And certainly, uh, life and issues relating to life uh, are part of, of the import of areas that we need to think biblically on. So uh, we're picking up discussion. You, if you got an outline, you came in, maybe saved yours from last week, or you got another one coming in this week, we're not going to quite follow that same order of questions. We're going to switch them around a little bit, but, uh, but hopefully we'll have time to get to all of the remainder questions. So Eric, again, thanks for, for being here, and we're just going to talk, uh, me and you and everybody else here. Very good. And uh, try and discuss some of these issues. And, and last week, uh, as we, we finished up, we were discussing the subject matter uh, of abortion, and uh, I think we saw pretty clearly in Scripture that, uh, that God says that life begins at conception, uh, and we discussed that area, but we also discussed that we kind of finished with that idea of what about in cases of, of rape and incest, and, uh, and you dealt, I thought, very well with those, and again, everybody can go back to the podcast and listen to those, but uh, we, we're going to kind of pick it up um, at another, you know, really can be kind of a touchy subject, and, and I know there's a lot of different feelings uh, about this, but um, the question that we, that we kind of ended with last week and then picking up with this one is, um, what about abortion in the cases where a mother's life uh, is in mortal danger? And I know you'll have something to say about that. that's a, a crucial uh, word right there, mortal, in mortal danger uh, as a result of mm-hmm. the pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, you know, how do we begin to look at that? Um, first off, is, is it a common problem? I guess maybe it's a good place to start. Right. Uh, certainly, uh, I think a, a critical question, and it's one that uh, perhaps as Christians maybe we don't give enough thought to uh, at times. Uh, the question of uh, abortion in the case of uh, mortal danger to the mother is a very serious one. Uh, first of all, we can say, well, you know, is this really a common problem, your question? Uh, to be truthful, it's not. The uh, Guttmacher Institute, which is a, a pro-abortion uh, institute, they uh, uh, gather all kinds of data on abortion and the practice of abortion. And uh, just from their data, uh, we, uh, we know that uh, those who uh, seek abortion services, uh, by far the mass, vast majority, uh, do so primarily for social reasons, matter of convenience or uh, just uh, feeling not ready to be a parent or uh, being pressured perhaps by uh, family or, or uh, spouse or, or whomever. Uh, this is not a common problem, um, but it is a problem that, uh, that does exist. And probably the most uh, common manifestation is what we call, or what doctors call, an ectopic pregnancy. Uh, for a pregnancy to be uh, successful, the uh, embryo, uh, the product of fertilization of the ova and the sperm, the embryo has to attach to the lining of uh, the uterus. Well, uh, in some cases, uh, the embryo, rather than attaching to the lining of the uterus, can attach somewhere else within uh, the woman's uh, body, uh, most commonly within what's called the uh, tube, the fallopian tube. When the embryo attaches to the fallopian tube, uh, that tube cannot expand. I mean, it always amazes me, and obviously you never tell a pregnant woman she's looking huge, but it always amazes me how much the woman's uh, uterus and abdomen can expand to accommodate this growing uh, child. Well, the fallopian tube can't do that like the uterus. 
And so the uh, ectopic preg pregnancy, the embryo, uh, will always die and in the process uh, risks rupturing the tube of the woman and that can lead to uh, fatal internal bleeding or hemorrhage. And so ectopic pregnancy is, is a very real uh, issue and it's something that I think is deserving uh, of our very careful uh, consideration. Well, um, let me just ask you this. Sure. I've got it written here just so I'm trying to be as clear about this uh, as I can be. Um, if the, uh, the ectopic pregnancy, and that's primarily the fallopian tube, but you're saying mm -hmm. it, anywhere besides uh, what would be sure it can attach an embryo can attach to the ovary can even attach to some other uh, tissue or organ within the abdomen but mostly we're talking tubal pregnancy right so in those cases um, if it if it does present a serious threat uh, to the mother's life what what is uh, to be done is um, is a woman obligated to to simply let nature take its course so to speak hoping that everything will, will be all right Right, so uh, though unintentional, uh, no one pretends that the embryo intends to injure the mother, uh, the reality is that the embryo in this case is presenting a very severe uh, uh, risk uh, to, to the mother, a risk of fatality. And so, yeah, some, some Christians would, uh, would argue that we simply, quote-unquote, kind of let go and let God, if you will, presuming that nature taking its course must be the will of God. Uh, I would uh, say anyone who wants to argue that point, uh, as soon as you uh, take an aspirin for a headache or get in your car and drive somewhere, you've uh, circumvented nature. And so uh, just because something is natural, if you will, doesn't necessarily mean that's the will of God. And so uh, I would say that that approach really uh, doesn't do justice uh, to the responsibility that we have to take care of our bodies and to seek to preserve and protect uh, human life. And so in the case of ectopic pregnancy, where we know that the birth rate is uh, zero percent. You and I talk a lot about that. Sure. That something, but I, and I, that was, I didn't know that. That was, sure. that was new to me. But as I understand it, for those types of pregnancy, it is zero percent chance of of that child coming to term. That's right. At, at present, uh, you know, even with all of our medical knowledge and skill, uh, we don't have a way to uh, save uh, the embryo uh, in the case of an ectopic pregnancy. Maybe in the future when the uh, technology of artificial wombs has, uh, uh, has uh, developed further, perhaps, maybe then. But at present, no, there's no way to save uh, the child. And so the question is, is do we seek to save the mother, life of the mother, uh, or not. And I would say that uh, our obligation is to uphold the sanctity of human life, not just that of the child, but that of the mother. And so one can be very consistent with God's call that we, uh, that we respect, that we value, that we protect human life. Uh, one can be very consistent in arguing that the situation is tragic, yet to save the mother's life and to do so through, uh, through the least... Um, the least injurious means possible. And well, what does that mean? Well, in general, to, uh, to, um, uh, to neutralize a threat, uh, we're generally obligated to use the least amount of force necessary. So, you know, uh, for those who are in law enforcement, you know, if the police department gets a call that there's a shoplifter down in uh, Walmart, you know, they don't uh, go and deploy four snipers on, you know, each corner of the building, right? 
So generally, we use the least force necessary to neutralize the threat. Well, in the case of ectopic pregnancy, uh, at present, we have no way of uh, saving uh, the baby. And so the, the least force necessary to save the life of a mother involves a termination of the pregnancy. Again, the child uh, can't develop, but, the, but our goal is to save the life of the mother. And that's a very worthy uh, goal, and it's one that's very consistent with the sanctity of life uh, ethic. And that's not a case, I know we need to move on, but that's, that's not a case then of choosing between one life or the other life. That, that's right. Uh, this, this is a case of self-defense. And, and Scripture clearly uh, upholds the, uh, the uh, um, morality, the rightness of uh, self-defense in the book of uh, Exodus. If uh, you want to turn there, feel free. Exodus 22. So in uh, Exodus uh, 20, uh, uh, Moses has recorded uh, God's giving of the Ten Commandments. And the Sixth Commandment is very clear, thou shalt not murder. We talked about that last, uh, last week. It's not thou shalt not kill, but it's thou shalt not murder. In some cases, killing is justified, and we'll get into that a little bit more this, uh, this morning perhaps. Uh, but on this particular point, in chapter 22, verse 2, uh, we read, if, if the thief is caught while breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there will be no blood guilt guiltiness on his account. But if the sun is risen on him, there will be blood guiltiness on this account, on his account. The point here is that if, uh, if a thief comes in at the night, well, the homeowner can't exactly figure out what the intention of that individual is going to be. The, uh, uh, the uh, trespasser may very well have uh, um, uh, designs of, of severe aggression, uh, even uh, killing. Homeowner has no way of knowing that, and Scripture says it's okay to defend yourself in that case. But if, uh, you know, things are out in the light and it's clear that you're dealing with a 12-year-old who's, you know, just looking for, you know, a, whatever, a pack of candy or something like that, well, clearly it's out of bounds to, uh, to take life. And so uh, self-defense is, is uh, very legitimate. And so in some cases, killing uh, can be, uh, uh, can be uh, morally uh, correct. In all cases, it's always tragic. To lose uh, a human life is always tragic. Uh, but the point here we're talking about is actually trying to save life. And so we can do that within a sanctity of life uh, ethic. Uh, there's another question kind of closely related to that that I'd like to deal with. But uh, time-wise, I'm going to move on okay. because I know there's a couple of subjects that people really mm -hmm. wanted to, to touch on. And time permitting, we'll come back to kind of a, a follow-up question uh, to that. But um, uh, the embryonic stem cell research obviously is kind of a hot button uh, topic right now. It's a lot, a lot of discussion about it. Um, so the question, I guess, the general question is, what does the Bible teach uh, concerning embryonic stem cell uh, research? And um, uh, first, what are stem cells? And what do they do? What, right. Uh, well, stem cells, uh, basically, stem cells are cells that have the capacity to generate a multi uh, multitude or different types of tissues. And so a stem cell, uh, what scientists would call a pluripotent stem cell, is a cell that has the capacity, given the right conditions, to form any tissue of the body. So if it's placed in uh, the right environment, it could theoretically form a liver cell or a blood cell or a cell of the uh, spleen or bone uh, tissue. So a stem cell has the capacity 
to form a multiple uh, a, a multiplicity of, of tissues, at least theoretically. In terms of where stem cells come from, basically there are two general types of stem cells uh, with regard to origin. Uh, one is an embryonic stem cell, and the other is what scientists uh, have called uh, or, or call an adult stem cell. An embryonic stem cell, as the uh, label suggests, comes from or is extracted from an embryo. An adult stem cell, uh, that term is a little misleading because actually it includes not just cells that uh, a doctor could uh, extract from, uh, say, my own body, uh, but it also includes uh, cells that can be uh, harvested from uh, cord blood. You may be familiar, uh, there are actually uh, uh, programs for uh, preserving and even donating uh, umbilical cord blood after, after birth. Stem cells can be harvested from uh, cord blood as well as our own adult tissues. Uh, the matter of origin, though, is critical because embryonic stem cells, uh, the process of deriving a stem cell from an embryo is always destructive to the embryo, whereas the process of deriving stem cells from uh, adult tissues or even cord blood uh, involves no irreparable harm to the donor. Uh, yeah, if, you're, uh, if your doctor says, well, to get your stem cells, we need to do a, a bone marrow aspirate, we can agree that's probably going to be painful. I'm not saying uh, there may not be pain there, but there's no irreparable uh, harm. Embryonic stem cells always involve the destruction uh, of the embryo. So why then is, is there the interest in the embry embryonic stem cells? Why not then just say, okay, we'll just take them from adults? Well, the, the, the interest, number one, in general with stem cells, uh, you know, science uh, clearly recognizes that, wow, if we have these cells that can form, uh, you know, any uh, or, uh, you know, maybe a, a, a subset of uh, tissues, then they could very well be garnered to the, or, or uh, uh, harnessed to the, uh, to the matter of uh, medical therapy. You know, we can use them to try and regenerate uh, say nerve cells, you know, uh, nerve injuries, injuries to the nervous system can be very devastating. And unfortunately, nerve cells uh, don't regenerate uh, very well on their own, as opposed to, uh, say, a liver cell. Uh, you know, it's amazing. Uh, surgeons can remove a massive portion of your liver, and in a year, you'll have almost all of your liver back. It grows back. Well, nerve cells don't do that. And so scientists are thinking, man, if we have these cells that can generate some of these tissues that uh, the adult body just can't regenerate, then you know, that could be a, a major uh, advance for, uh, for um, medical therapy. With adult stem cells, uh, research involving adult stem cells uh, has yielded some success. There are a number of studies, uh, some uh, directed towards conditions like multiple sclerosis, um, uh, lupus, um, cardiovascular disease, stroke. Uh, there, are, uh, some, uh, there is some research with adult stem cells that shows uh, promise uh, for that type of therapy. With embryonic stem cells, uh, the uh, success is lacking, at least at this stage. And there's probably a number of reasons for that. Uh, one is, uh, uh, admittedly, it's more difficult to uh, get the okay from most uh, clinical research committees to uh, to use embryonic uh, stem cells in a clinical trial where you're actually putting it in patients. But there, are, there have been some trials that have been approved uh, by, uh, by the governmental agency. 
Another reason why uh, success is lacking with embryonic stem cells is that uh, they're very hard to tame. Embryonic stem cells uh, want to form a whole lot of different kinds of tissues. And uh, animal studies have shown that they uh, are prone to forming uh, tumors, tumors called teratomas, which just involve a whole lot of body tissues. And you can imagine if you put that in the brain and all of a sudden you get this massive tumor, then clearly that's uh, not what we're looking for in terms of therapeutic effect. Uh, embryonic uh, stem cells, because they come from uh, someone other than the patient, uh, also have the potential to produce immune reactions, just like if, uh, if you get a, uh, an organ transplant, uh, your body will want to reject that organ because it's not from your own body, it's from someone else's, so usually the doctors put you on these immunosuppressive drugs. Uh, rejection uh, is also an issue with embryonic stem cells. So, uh, to date, adult stem cells show some promise. Uh, embryonic stem cells, not necessarily so. But that hasn't kept uh, advocates of embryonic stem cell research from pushing for uh, social acceptance and government funding for embryonic stem cell uh, research. And uh, perhaps most of you have you know, seen the ads certainly during political campaigns uh, here in the recent memory. This issue has come up and generally what happens is they get celebrities who have horrific diseases, folks like Michael J. Fox and, and Christopher Reeves. Horrific disease, you know, grasping for, for cure. And, and, and hadn't that been I mean, one of the knocks against uh, Christianity, if we object to, to the idea of mm -hmm. using embryonic stem cells, is we're being in, uncompassionate uh, toward those types of diseases. Sure, There's I mean, to help those. That's right. I mean, to, to oppose the message of a, of a man who is confined to a wheelchair and breathes by a machine, you know, one risks being uh, labeled as, uh, you know, an, an uncompassionate jerk. And so. Christians need to be careful in terms of how they address the issue because the, certainly the first thing that we can do and must do is, number one, we, we must acknowledge the reality of human suffering. You know, it, it's real. And so we ought never to, uh, to dismiss that even as we interact with those who are pushing for means that we would say are unethical. Uh, so we, we acknowledge and, and we must be, the church must be, I, I would say, a, a balm uh, to those who, who suffer, to, to bring compassion and concern and support uh, for those who suffer. We can uh, certainly agree that medicine is a great good. It's a great manifestation, I believe, of God's grace. The fact that he equips us to gain knowledge and skill uh, in an area that uh, allows us to minister to the needs, to the suffering uh, of, uh, uh, of others. And so uh, suffering is real. Medicine is a great good. And so the issue isn't, you know, is, is it good or not to, to look for cures to horrific disease? That's not the issue. Sometimes that's how it gets painted out in the press and media, but that's not the issue. The issue is, are any and all means just open for this goal of finding a cure, or are there limitations even on what we might do, what we might employ in this effort to find a cure? Because the use of the embryonic stem cells always is destructive to the embryo. That's right. That's and so if, as we, had, uh, as, as we had argued last week, and I would uh, certainly maintain today, if the human embryo is uh, just as much a human being 
as the 70-year-old, as the 50-year-old, as the 10-year-old, as the one-day-old. If the embryo is a human being, then, uh, then we've got a problem with embryonic stem cell research. You know, as an illustration, if my doctor tells me, you know, look, Eric, your, your heart's not working all that well, and, uh, you know, you need a heart transplant. And I, you know, just go out, uh, you know, to the uh, street corner and see some unsuspecting individual with his back turned to me, and I conk him on the head and drag him to some, you know, back alley OR or whatever so that doctors can take his heart and put it in me. You know, everyone would agree that that's just way out of bounds. You know, that, that, that's just, it's unethical. And we all agree on that, right? Well, if it's unethical to, you know, take the life of this, you know, whatever, 45-year-old man to get his heart, then why is it any more ethical to take the life of a whatever, a one-day-old or a uh, in-the-womb or a just-conceived embryo? Why is it any more ethical to take the life of that individual than it is for this 45-year-old? It's a major consistency problem that advocates of embryonic stem cell research have. And they recognize that, and the way that they uh, try to deal with that, generally, at least ethicists who are uh, talking about these uh, uh, things uh, amongst themselves in academia and then as they uh, get uh, play in the media, generally the way that they approach that is to say, you know what, the human embryo is human life, biologically, you know. Uh, a human embryo is never going to turn into a dog. It's not going to turn into a rat. It's, you know, if it's allowed to develop, sure, it's going to turn into a human. But it's not a person. They'll say person. So not all human beings, uh, they would argue, are human persons. Right? And so the question is, okay, well, what are Christians supposed to do with that? You know, is, is this distinction between human person and human being real? And I would say, uh, of course not. It's completely arbitrary. It's just a philosophical sleight of hand. Where you see human life, that's human life. It's a human being. If you want to use the word person, fine. Use the word person. A human being is a human person. A human life is a human life. When we go to Scripture, we see no such distinctions. A human life is a human life. right? And you mentioned last week uh, the um, uh, passage in uh, Exodus uh, uh, relating to, you know, if two men get in a fight and, you know, one of them's not careful and actually smacks the other guy's wife who's pregnant and she gives birth, right, prematurely. She wasn't quite the term. She gives birth prematurely. The passage God tells them says, look, if there's no injury to the child, then, you know, the penalty is just, you know, whatever the judge would prescribe for, you know, hitting a lady, right? But if the child is harmed, then the lex talionis applies, Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, life for a life, right? Life in the womb is just as valuable as life outside of the womb, right? And so, yes, if a human embryo is a human life, as we maintain, then embryonic stem cell research, because it involves the destruction of a human embryo, is immoral. Okay. Um, let me ask this one. That's kind of the last one dealing in this area, but... Uh, let me just read it to you. We, we read about, uh, you know, untold numbers of human embryos being maintained in frozen storage, in, in right. fertility clinics, right. that sort of thing. We, we know uh, that's right. Um, 
and we know that the, at present the reality is that the vast majority of those embryos will never be given the opportunity to develop inside of a womb because of the number that are, that are created. Should we, as some people propose, uh, try to salvage some good out of the situation by directing unwanted embryos towards medical research? Right. So, uh, since the um, uh, since reproductive medicine uh, fertility treatments uh, started up, uh, what's happened over time is there's been an accumulation of frozen human embryos that are essentially uh, stored in the shelves of uh, within reproductive clinics across the nation. And we don't know exactly how many human embryos there are. Uh, one study in uh, 2004, I think, by a RAND Corporation, uh, they identified that maybe there's about 400,000 human embryos stored in, uh, in reproductive clinics across the, the states. The reality, as you said, uh, most of those are never going to be transplanted to a womb, at least not uh, with our uh, present approach uh, to that problem. And so, you know, there is this great temptation to say, you know, look, you know, they're going to die anyway, so why not just uh, put them to the use of trying to find a cure for a horrific disease, right? And again, our, our beef here is not with, with the goal of trying to find a cure for disease. Right. Uh, again, medicine is it's a great thing, but it has to operate within boundaries. And so our response to that problem uh, is not to say, well, uh, we have these human beings on a shelf since we really can't uh, put them in a womb uh, to, uh, to develop, then let's go ahead and just destroy them all for our own good. That's essentially what, uh, what is behind that question. And I say, no, that's, that's immoral. It's always immoral to use a human being for your benefit. The embryo on the shelf is posing no, no mortal threat uh, to any human being. So this is not a case of self-defense like we were talking about with ectopic pregnancies. This is just a case of uh, some, some folks advocating uh, that we do exactly as Paul cautioned uh, us not to, which is, well, let's do evil so that good may result. Right? So it's not enough just to say what we're against. Right? That's an important point. The question is, well, what are we for? And we're for human life. And we ought to, uh, in response to that situation of all these embryos uh, sitting on a shelf, number one, we ought to encourage those whose uh, children are on a shelf uh, to allow them to develop, to carry out, uh, you know, transfer into the uterus of, of the mother. That's the right thing to do. If that's not possible, maybe the mother's died uh, or uh, maybe has had some medical problem where she can't uh, carry a, a child to term, then we ought to encourage adoption, just as uh, our response to the, the problem of abortion is. The answer is not to kill. The answer is to figure out how we can nurture and we can uh, protect and preserve and to uh, honor uh, human life uh, simply because that is uh, God's intention, right? God's intention is not that we engage in unlawful killing, right? So that's our response. And, you know, you saw that with the, what was called, I think it was called the snowflake uh, embryo uh, adoption and donation program or something uh, started under uh, President uh, Bush. You know, the whole goal of that was to find uh, couples who would be willing to adopt an embryo and have that embryo 
transferred uh, into the uh, uh, wife's uh, womb to allow that embryo to, to develop. And so I do recall President Bush having this, you know, uh, White House signing in with all these children around him who were the products. And it puts a face on uh, the human embryo because that's one of the challenges. You know, since, you know, we're just talking about a cell that you really can't see without a microscope, you know, there's this temptation to think, well, it's not really me. It's not really, well, bottom line is uh, every person here at one point in time was a single-celled human embryo. And uh, so we ought to always remember that uh, the embryo is just as much a human being as any of us in this room are. Well, let me ask you this, and maybe this is kind of a practical question. Uh, if, there, if a couple is um, having difficulty conceiving and, and uh, they, uh, they determine to, to go through some fertility mm -hmm. uh, processes, I know that one of the things that you talked about was, was that doctors are tending to harvest way more eggs um, mm -hmm. than necessary. Um, and so, it, it, maybe you want to address that just a little bit. Just, is, is that a question, like if a couple is going to go in, should they tell their doctor, here's how many, you know? Sure. Yeah, uh, infertility is a real problem. And there may be a number of reasons for it. Uh, one of which is that, you know, we live in a sin-cursed world, and disease is a reality of the human condition, right? And whether that disease is orthopedic or neurologic or reproductive, Disease is disease. Well, there is nothing wrong at all with seeking, uh, the, uh, seeking cure to disease, seeking restoration of health. That's very appropriate. Uh, the question with uh, infertility uh, treatment, uh, again, relates to the, the question of means. And as Christians, we ought to be very concerned about uh, treatment methods or protocols that will uh, f uh, foster or exacerbate this problem of embryos sitting on a shelf, right? And so with the infertility, uh, the most common uh, infertility of protocols, typically what uh, the uh, physician will do, uh, he or she will uh, uh, try to promote uh, what's called superovulation, where they can get the woman to ovulate uh, several or many eggs uh, during a particular cycle rather than just the one or maybe the two. We have twins, right, and stuff. So um, first thing they want to do is they want to try and get a lot of eggs. And then once they have the eggs, then they'll say, okay, now let's go ahead and uh, fertilize those uh, eggs in vitro in the lab. And then they'll get all of these eggs and then they'll uh, boil it down to a number of embryos. And then they'll say, okay, now how many embryos do you want us to transplant in? Right? right? And if you say, well, you know, eight is too many, if that means there's a good chance I'm going to have quintuplets or something, right? Then, you know, their protocol then is to say, okay, well, we'll put this number, we'll put five in, four or whatever, and then we'll take these other three or whatever and we'll put them on the shelf, and if you want to go through another round later, fine. Chan reality is that sometimes when folks get their twins or their triplets, they say, I think that's enough for us, and then, you know, these others remain on the shell. I, I think a, a, a more ethical uh, approach is to tell the doctor up front, look, this is, uh, you know, this is the maximum number of, uh, of children that we're prepared, either resource-wise or whatever, to, uh, to handle, you know, if God, uh, you know, is gracious and we have live births. We can only handle three or four. 
And telling the doctor that up front, you can then also say, we don't want to have uh, excess embryos. That's a, that's a problem. We don't want them stored on a shelf. However many embryos you create, that number uh, is uh, the number at most that we're going to have transferred. And so you need to have this conversation up front with your doctor. Again, the point here is not to discourage anyone from pursuing right. uh, fertility treatments, right? That, again, that's a, it's a very uh, reasonable and I think a very consistent with what the Bible has to say concerning uh, medicine. Medicine's a great thing. But the point is, is that we need to be careful about methods and means and those that diminish or denigrate uh, the value of human life or the life of the embryo, uh, Christians must say thank you, but no thank you. Right. Okay, uh, real quickly, because I know this is a question that has come up several times, um, even during my q and I've received this question and been kind of holding it off uh, till now, but it has to do with the idea of uh, birth control. Uh, a lot of Christians seem to be asking that question. Uh, I think in light of the Duggar family, it must have something to do with this. I'm, I'm not sure. Um, but is it wrong to limit the size of our family through uh, birth control? Uh, in other words, does Scripture demand that a couple just have as many children as possible? Which, you know, I said something about the Duggar. I, I heard them say, heard, what's the husband's name? Jim Bob. I heard this Jim, must be on cable or something, I don't know. Yeah, I heard Jim Bob say, well, you know, because they asked her, they've got 19 kids. Oh, wow, he's asking, okay. Are you gonna, is, is your wife going to get pregnant again? And he said, we're just, we're going to have as many as God gives to us. Which I, I think, you know, it's fine whatever the conviction, but, but are, are we as believers, are we obligated? The scriptures say you have to just have as many as God lets you have. Right. Very good, uh, very good question. Um, I think probably the place to start is with, uh, with God's blessing in Genesis. And again, I know we talked about it last week, uh, but it's worth reiterating. If we want to know how to deal Christianly, godly, in a way that honors God with these issues or whatever, we really have to have an accurate understanding of reality as it is. We have to understand the world as it really is, and not how we want to think about it or how we want it to be, but how it is. And so to understand uh, reality, to understand uh, the condition of the world and the condition of, uh, of the human uh, heart and mind, uh, we need to be very grounded in Genesis. And in Genesis, uh, as God uh, creates, you recall we talked about how God looks at aspects of his creation. He says, this is good, this is good, this is good. God creates Adam and Eve, places them in the garden. This is very good, right? And God uh, blesses them. And God blesses them and says, be fruitful and multiply, right? right? And rule or subdue uh, the creatures or the creation, right? So God not only created Adam and Eve, he had purpose in mind. And his purpose was for them to populate the earth and to uh, exercise dominion or, or godly uh, rule or stewardship over the creation, right? Now you may say, well, yeah, but what about the fall, right? That fall thing's there in Genesis, and you're right, right? Chapter three, Adam and Eve sin, you know the story. And God brings a curse upon the earth as a consequence of sin. But God's blessing, God's command that we be fruitful and multiply, 
wasn't just left in the garden. No, he repeats it actually to Noah and Noah's family twice, as a matter of fact, in Genesis chapter 9. And so that is a blessing. It is a mandate that continues to this very day. Be fruitful and multiply, right? So um, that said, that is the mandate for humankind, right? But it would be a mistake to say that's the mandate for all people, right? Jesus and Paul both uh, brought our attention to the fact that actually God calls some people to singleness, right? Often so that they can uh, do certain acts of service or types of service uh, calling within uh, the church to advance his kingdom that may be very difficult to do when one is uh, encumbered with the responsibility of family life, right? God calls some to singleness. And, you know, I'm just going to take a sidebar here, if I could, just for a sec, Clay, because I think the church uh, sometimes uh, forgets that. And we make singleness out to be almost like it's a, a disease or a problem that's just got to be solved. When in fact, God may very well be calling that individual or those individuals uh, to a kingdom service that uh, involves, uh, uh, that, uh, that uh, is best uh, accomplished uh, with uh, singleness uh, as one's family mode. Uh, I'm not here uh, preaching a celibacy for priests or pastors or anything like that. That's not, that's not what we're talking about here. But God does call uh, some to singleness. I say that. Not every couple, uh, not every uh, married uh, couple uh, is going to have children. And I think sometimes God calls married couples uh, to, uh, to um, uh, childlessness, if you will, for lack of a better word, uh, for uh, similar reasons to uh, why he may call some to be single. There are certain things uh, within Christian ministry, uh, within a gospel work, uh, that uh, having children, at least for a particular season, uh, may uh, make it very difficult to carry out that particular ministry. Okay? So, childlessness does not necessarily indicate the lack of God's blessing. And I think that's a critical point uh, that, we, uh, that we understand. Right? Yes, Scripture says children are a blessing, they're loved by God, and they ought to be loved by us. But that doesn't mean that God is necessarily called uh, all uh, married couples to have children. So that, that we need to say up front, because if we don't have that up front, then it's going to be very easy to take what I now say uh, concerning birth control and uh, distort it or, or misunderstand it. Um, Childlessness, uh, certainly, as I said earlier, can be a manifestation of disease. There's nothing wrong with seeking medical uh, help. In our limited knowledge, we're not omniscient. We don't always know, well, God's calling me to this ministry down the road that having children may not be uh, useful for that. We have our limited knowledge. And, you know, a couple that's childlessness and they feel the the burden or the call to have children, they ought to seek uh, help. That's very appropriate. On the other end, uh, when we talk about birth control, uh, the question is, you know, must we? Is there some sort of biblical mandate that we just have as many children as is naturally uh, possible? And certainly some, uh, so, some would think that, you know, we're just going to leave it up to God and we'll just have, you know, as many children as God gives us. And I respect that. Uh, but at the same time, um, that's not a, uh, a judgment for uh, all people uh, within the church, uh, I believe a case for uh, birth control can be made uh, on the basis of a biblical notion of stewardship. Mm -hmm. 
God calls us not just to be stewards, but to be good stewards, right? And you all remember perhaps the, uh, uh, Jesus' parable of the talents. You know, the, the master, he gives uh, this one servant ten talents, another five, and another uh, two or one or whatever, right? And says, okay, well, I'm, I'm heading off on a trip. Make good on what I've given you, you know, turn it into a profit. And, uh, you know the story, uh, you know, the guy with 10 talents, you know, says, yeah, here's another 10, man, I really did a great job here. And same thing with the five. And then uh, there's this other servant who says, you know, well, I just stuck it in the ground because, you know, I was kind of fearful. And, you know, the, the judgment is, you know, you wicked servant. God calls us to be good stewards of the resources, resources that he gives us. If you have the resources or can reasonably expect that you'll have the resources to, to raise a, a large family, God bless you. You know, children are a very important, uh, you know, there are some serious responsibilities that come with having children. And having the resources to, uh, to raise those children and to raise them well, uh, that's an aspect of stewardship. If you don't have those uh, uh, resources, then uh, you may seriously want to think about, well, how many children uh, can we uh, have that we can raise and raise well? Right? And so it, is a, it can very well be uh, justified as an aspect of stewardship. But it's not a one-size-fits-all. You know, everyone's got to have five children or two children or the whatever, one and a half or two and a half. I can't remember what the mean is these days. But it is a matter of stewardship. So, uh, it's, not, it's not unbiblical to limit the size of your family. Right? Correct. Yeah. Correct. Mm-hmm. So, um, that, that implies that, or saying that, that using birth control is not necessarily unbiblical or immoral, but mm-hmm. it does raise the question, should we be concerned about what types of birth control might be appropriate? Absolutely. We need to be concerned with that, just as we ought to be concerned with the methods that we might advocate for the uh, effort to cure disease. Well, the same thing with birth control. Not just any and every means are, are on the table. Right? And just as the Guttmacher data you know, shows, 93% of abortions are done for social reasons, basically for birth control. 93%. 93%. That's the Guttmacher data. What's that other 7%? Well, probably in this category of health and health of the mother, but society has such a broad definition of what health of the mother is. The reality is probably 99.5% of abortions are done for uh, social reasons, birth control. That's out of bounds. We've already said that the occupant of the womb, right, is a human being and is deserving of our uh, love and our protection. He or she is an individual that's known uh, by God and loved by God, right? And so we are to preserve and to protect life where it occurs, right? And so abortion, whether it's surgical or medical, uh, is not an appropriate form of birth control, right? And so when we talk about methods, I'm not going to get into a, uh, a robust conversation here this morning about methods. I'd certainly be happy to talk with the uh, folks on an individual basis uh, if you'd like, but I, I do think we probably ought to say something about the pill, because certainly the pill has been around a long time. The pill is a, it's a, uh, it's a combination drug, has a, a progestin and, a, and an estrogen, two drugs that together are intended to, primarily intended to prevent ovulation, right? So again, 
you know, as the woman cycle uh, progresses, at some point, uh, normally the ovary is going to release an egg, and that egg travels down the tube, and uh, uh, then there is the possibility that it can get fertilized, and once fertilized, then it uh, seeks a, uh, a comfy place in the uterus, attaches what they call implantation, and then develops from there. The pill uh, is intended to prevent uh, ovulation. Right? But the reality is, is it doesn't work all the time. If that is the sole method of birth control, uh, there is a chance uh, that uh, ovulation is going to occur and that with ovulation then the possibility of fertilization and then having a child. And perhaps most of you in this room may know of someone who you heard, well, yeah, we, we thought they were on the pill, but, you know, had a, had a kid. It's a real possibility, right? And so the chances that a woman on the pill can ovulate are probably somewhere around 6% or 6 out of 100. Okay. So ovulation can occur. And then, obviously, if uh, there's uh, been intercourse and the timing is right, then that egg can be, uh, can be uh, fertilized. The pill has two other uh, effects. And these are effects that uh, most folks don't know about. Uh, many doctors may even not be aware because they just they understand, yeah, the pill prevents ovulation. But uh, what I'm telling you this morning, it's, uh, it's common knowledge. If you refer to what's called the physician desk reference for uh, the pill and you look under mechanism of action, you're going to see these three things stated. Prevention of ovulation is the first. The second uh, mode of action for the pill is that it, uh, it uh, promotes a, a formation of a barrier that prevents uh, the uh, sperm from being able to make it all the way up uh, to where the egg is to fertilize, uh, to fertilize it. Uh, but there's a third uh, mechanism, uh, mechanism of action, and it's one that I think should give us a serious uh, pause. Uh, and that is, is that uh, the pill has the added effect that it makes the uterus uh, the lining of the uterus, uh, it causes change in, in the lining of the uterus such that the uterus becomes an inhospitable environment for the embryo. So if ovulation has occurred, the egg has then been fertilized and it makes its way down to the uterus, it finds itself uh, you know, in, a, in a, a bummer of a place. And the chances that it's going to be able to implant are much reduced. So at that point, the pill then becomes a form of medical abortion. It prevents the embryo from attaching and thus uh, pre, uh, uh, doesn't allow it the opportunity to develop. Again, sometimes the embryo, hardy as it may be, can overcome those things, or maybe there was some irregularity in terms of the dosing or whatever. So yeah, sometimes live birth can happen even when a woman's on a pill. And certainly if, if you're on a pill and, and, and you, know, you discover that you're pregnant, you know, you need to uh, discontinue to talk to your doctor, get rid of the uh, pill for sure. But uh, that's the concern uh, with the that, pill, that is, third, yeah. is that third mechanism, mechanism of action, that it can actually cause a medical abortion. Okay? And again, our, our purpose here this morning, uh, it, you know, we're, we're not here to, to cater to comforts, neither are we here to throw stones. Our, our purpose is just to uh, live by the truth, right? And so we're God calls us to be holy as he's holy. Uh, what does that mean? It means that we uh, live in a way that glorifies God. And so we acknowledge uh, the value that God has placed on human life. And so we seek to preserve and to protect it. And so if there are things that we do 
whether uh, by our own initiative or by even the, the uh, well-intended counsel of others, doctors or whatever, if there are things that we do that really do jeopardize uh, human life, then uh, we need to take a step back. And so my encouragement is, uh, you know, if you're uh, on the pill, uh, to uh, think about this issue, but then think about maybe combination methods. There are other methods of birth control that can be uh, added to the protocol or even used uh, singularly without the pill. There are some women who need to be on the pill for other medical reasons, and if that's the case, certainly it, it would be prudent to add some of these other measures, whether it's uh, barrier uh, devices, whether it's you know the the uh, what's called the rhythm cycle. You know, a woman is not fertile for all uh, you know 28 whatever 30 days of her cycle. There's actually just a few days that uh, are uh, 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 are in that range where uh, where fertilization can occur, and so you can work with your doctor to try and figure out what that rhythm may be, but. There are other methods that don't have the nasty uh, uh, side effect or, or potential, uh, potentiality to uh, cause um, uh, an abortion, uh, as I've described it. And so that's what I would say on the pill. Uh, it's certainly a lot to think about, isn't it? Uh, and, and we've discussed a few areas today, just really begun to scratch the surface of some of those areas. But uh, I believe that it's important that we think about such issues, and uh, and I think especially on that last issue, and uh, I know, like I said, I know I've received that question several times, uh, and and I had I've been in agreement about that, but the the the, the three uh, effects of the pill, I, I'd never heard that before. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't know that, but mm -hmm. uh, but here's what we know: it, it's not necessarily biblically wrong to have as many children as you want to have, or to limit the size of your family. Because I, I do agree with you. I do think mm -hmm. it's a stewardship issue. Stewardship of those children and stewardship mm -hmm. over the resources that God has given to us. Um, but also thinking about how we go about those uh, birth control methods if we're going to try and be as biblical as we could be in, uh, in every area of our life. Well, uh, Dr. Clary, thank you again for taking the time uh, went a little bit longer today uh, with, uh, with the discussion, but I really wanted us to at least begin get that kind of fleshed out. You may have other questions that you want to ask. Well, what about this situation? How about in this and whatever? Um, Eric is uh, just the easiest guy in the world to get a hold of. He's always willing to talk with anybody and respond to any questions or thoughts or struggles that you're having in your life. I, I am as well, uh, of course, but... Um, He's smart, and I've got a tie, so, you know, you've got to Clay, if I, go if I might just interject just one, one moment, okay. just for a sec, uh, a couple things. Uh, obviously, we didn't have time, I guess, this morning, really, to get to the euthanasia uh, question. Uh, no doubt, uh, probably folks in this uh, body have either dealt with or are dealing with or will be dealing with issues of, uh, of uh, medical care for, uh, for the elderly, maybe for parents or grandparents, whatever. A lot of issues involved there. Uh, if, if you find yourself um, struggling over, you know, uh, questions of how to proceed, uh, you know, what kinds of things are inbounds as opposed to out-of-bounds in terms of end-of-life care, uh, number one, you're welcome, just as Clay uh, said, uh, always would be uh, uh, happy to talk with you, and certainly Clay can give you much counsel on those issues as well. Another thing I would like to commend to you, it's a very uh, a small book. Uh, not too fine a print, 
Uh, it's authored by a guy by the name of John Kilner, K-I-L-N-E-R, and co-authored by uh, C. Ben Mitchell. Uh, both of these individuals are bioethicists working from a Christian perspective. Uh, they have authored this book called Does God Need Our Help? Cloning, Assisted Suicide, and Other Challenges in Bioethics. Uh, this is a very uh, good uh, introductory resource uh, into these uh, issues, and I would uh, certainly commend it uh, to anyone wanting to know a little bit more. Obviously, there's only so much ground we can cover in right. just uh, you know, even, even two sessions. Uh, you can get, get a deeper treatment uh, of the issues, but not a heady or just academic uh, type of deal. It's very practical, so I would commend that to you. Again, the first author, you can uh, Google it or check it on Amazon, Kilner, K-I-L. N-E-R, does God need our help? Thank you, Clay. And, th and thank you again for thank just you. the invitation to, uh, to uh, participate in, in this forum. And I hope that it was uh, fruitful uh, and productive. So. Yeah, and, and that was our desire. And obviously, from, uh, at least from the response we got last week, uh, I think it was. I hope today helped as well. And we may periodically do these again about uh, ethical issues that uh, affect our lives because we, we need to think biblically. Hopefully, our last two weeks' discussions have helped us better understand the importance of thinking biblically when it comes to making decisions in life. God's position on these very important issues is very different from most of the world. But as followers of Jesus, our standards, values, and decisions must line up with the truth of God's Word. It also means reaching out and loving those who have made choices that are contrary to God's will and showing them God's love. Now, if you missed part one last week, be sure to go back to the media page at crossculturelife.org and download the message. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sundays at 1030 at Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross. And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, hope, and joy. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. Cross Culture Church, a new church for people like you. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross.